0: Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com.
1: There's a school story about a prairie chicken who found an egg and sat on it until it hatched. Unbeknownst to the prairie chicken, the egg was an eagle egg, abandoned for some reason. That's how an eagle came to be born into a family of prairie chickens. While the eagle is the greatest of all birds, soaring above the heights with grace and ease, the prairie chicken doesn't even know how to fly. In fact, prairie chickens are so lowly that they eat garbage. Predictably, the little eagle being raised in a family of prairie chickens thought he was a prairie chicken. He walked around, ate garbage, and clucked like a prairie chicken. One day he looked up to see a majestic bald eagle soar through the air, dipping and turning. When he asked his family what it was, they responded, it's an eagle. But you can never be like that because you're just a prairie chicken. Then they returned to pecking the garbage. The eagle spent his whole life looking up at eagles, longing to join them among the clouds. It never once occurred to him to lift his wings and try to fly. The eagle died thinking he was just a prairie chicken. Spiritually speaking, you were born to fly but some of you think and act like prairie chickens because the world keeps telling you that's what you are. God created you a little lower than the angels we read in the Bible. Do you ever feel like there's something more to life than what you're experiencing? Well, I challenge you to look up, lift your spiritual wings and fly. God wants you to be all that you were created to be. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 14, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. In other words, stop living like eagles who think they're prairie chickens. You are no longer ignorant. You know who and what you are. You are born again through the living and enduring word of God. Now live that way. Spread your wings and fly.
0: Do you have friends or family members that are not Christians? How can you share the gospel with them in a way that doesn't push them away, but allows you to have natural conversations about the Christian faith? Hello and welcome to our GCS podcast with international evangelist and author, Tony Anthony. God calls every believer to live a life of radical faith, but what does that really mean? Do you ever feel that your lifestyle and the way other people see you prevents you from sharing the gospel? Do you feel like you have to be perfect for God to use you? Let's join Tony as he answers this sensitive topic and shares insight on how to engage in sharing the gospel.
1: God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. We've previously focused on the importance of recognising, empowering and supporting the Ephesians evangelists amongst us. Yet, if there's a driving purpose to this podcast, it's to ignite the passion of all Christians, to inspire and equip all who claim to love the Lord Jesus, to embrace the Great Commission on a very personal level. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promised his followers that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now let's examine again some of the instances in which we see Jesus commissioning his followers to go out in his name. I've made frequent reference to Mark 16, 15, and Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, but there are key passages in the Gospels of both Luke and John that many understand is the Great Commission. For example, we got Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49. Let's read that. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that it is written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. We also read in John chapter 20, verses 19-23. to 23, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. You know, there can be little doubt that the Great Commission is given to all disciples of Jesus Christ. It was originally given to his first followers in the period shortly before his ascension, essentially outlining what the Lord expected his disciples to do in his coming absence. But because it tells them to teach others to obey everything they were taught by Jesus, it is perpetual. It is very perpetual, this. The very fact that Jesus specifically refers to preaching the gospel to all creation broadens that timeline from the very first believers up until today and onwards, until the Lord returns. This is truly a task for the full legacy of the Christian church. You know, we cannot pick and choose which commands of our Lord we are going to follow. Jesus Christ's last command of the Christian community was go into the world and preach the good news to all creation in Mark 16:15. This command, which the church calls the Great Commission, was not intended merely for the 11 remaining apostles, or preaching the gospel would have stopped, wouldn't it, when they died? You know, but for those in present times as well who may have the gift of evangelism, this command is the duty of every man and woman who confesses Christ as Lord. You know, we return then to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and recognise, don't we, that here we are presented with very clear evangelistic strategy. If ever we were unsure just who Jesus is asking us to witness to, well, the answer is easy found. And, you know, by unpacking this powerful piece of scripture, you know, the, the Lord first promises us that the Holy Spirit will give us authority and strength for the task ahead. When he speaks about being witnesses, he means we're to be just that. People who tell what they've seen and experienced to others who've not yet seen and experienced. Where are these people? Jesus addresses this next. They are first in Jerusalem, second in Judea, third in Samaria, and finally throughout the ends of the earth. What does that look like for us today, though? I mean, let's consider Jerusalem. One reason the Lord Jesus instructed his disciples to start in the city was because it was where they were. It was their home. And what better place to start than on our own doorstep? Our Jerusalem, then, is our immediate circle of friends, family, neighbours, work colleagues, and so on. Take heart here. Jesus knows that our Jerusalem can be a huge challenge. In fact, the toughest one of them all. Consider what the disciples' track record was like in Jerusalem. I mean, when Jesus was taken into custody, the disciples deserted him and ran away. Peter, as you know, denied him three times. We read about it in Matthew 26 and um, verses 56 and also from 69 to 75. You know, Jerusalem was a tough call for the disciples stepping out on their mission, but Jesus explicitly instructs them to start here. You know, their place of greatest failure. The uncomfortable but essential fact for us to grasp then is that we have to start showing in the place where we might have been least effective as a witness. It is difficult, but that's where we need to start. If we can witness in our Jerusalem, we can witness anywhere. So don't ever imagine that God doesn't call us to share our faith amongst those with whom we feel we failed. You know, easier said than done. (laughs) Many of us have family or friends with whom we've never been able to share our faith, or those with whom we've tried and seemingly got nowhere or even been rejected outright. You know, when it seems such a taller order to begin at close quarters, I believe our first step has to come through loving these people and, and through persistent prayer. A helpful way to witness amongst such people might be by saying sorry, you know, apologise. Say, I'm, I'm sorry I've never shared with you the thing that's most important to me. You know, or oh, I'm sorry that I've been too pushy in sharing with you that, you know, what's important to me. I'm sorry about that. And maybe try to be more winsome as you as you tackle it. You know, if we're genuine, ultimately, in what, what we're saying, the other person will sense that and, 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 and you know, and put what we're going to say in a, in a different light demonstrating love respect and gentleness really is crucial when it comes to evangelism in some cases there are people we might have known for years but somehow the subject of our faith has just never come up you know is it too late to start now is it really you know maybe we feel that our lifestyle and the way they see us doesn't match up to what we'd like to preach it isn't uncommon to feel awkward and embarrassed for these reasons but consider jesus's instruction to a new believer. You know, we read in Mark chapter five, verse 19, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Jesus constantly taught that if we are his followers, our lives will bear the stamp of profound love to God, to ourselves and to our neighbours. Our sociology ought to reflect our theology. Amongst our close family and friends, we would hope to be the living gospel from which should spring questions and discussions about what and why we believe. How we treat others will be the clearest signal of what we think God is like. I always remember my dear missionary friend Michael Wright, who led me to Christ, pointing out, you might well be the first Bible a person will ever read. It's true, isn't it? Most people will read our lives long before they ever pick up the actual book, the Bible itself. You and I are a witness whether we want to be or not. Either we're a good one or a poor one. We may bring good news or we may bring bad news just how do we go about introducing the subject of the gospel? You know, if it has never naturally come up in conversation, that can be really tough. Well, Jews would have a step out in boldness. I found a useful strategy is to go to the person in question or, or write or text, phone, saying something like, can I just talk to you about something? It's only really just occurred to me that we've known each other for a long time now. And I know you see me go off to church and <laughs> I'm what you might call religious, but I've never really told you about the most important thing in my life. I'm sorry, you know, it, it seems silly to be so close to someone. And, and yet I've never really explained it to you. Now, of course, it's then up to me whether I, I weave the gospel message into, into my testimony or you know, my, my own story or use a more package explanation of the gospel of the kind I described earlier in this podcast series. You know, but, you know, what will the react, person's reaction be? If they value me as a friend, they should certainly respect me coming to them in this fashion, particularly as I'm asking them to forgive me for not speaking up before. They should certainly, you know, get a reaction and earn their ear, hopefully. You know, an an apology can be endearing and is a big indication that something major has happened in my life. And by approaching a friend in this way, the biggest message I'm giving is I value you. That's what we're really saying. And now let me share the most important thing in my life with you. So when we think about our Jerusalem, we need to consider a little bit more whether we can care about someone and not share these things. That's the real question. And remember, we're not going to preach at them. No way. Far from it. The hope should always be that There'll be come a time when they'll ask to you know have a full explanation of our hope in Christ and you know this glorious gospel. What on earth does it mean? You know why do you believe in that so much? Tell me more about it. You know can we live in a life and uh, speak in a certain way that might attract that sort of question? You know another to be underestimated point, however, is that the that often in Jerusalem we're, we're called to do no more than groundwork. You know a most crucial task. You know. Many Christians seem to find their influence and testimony nudges a friend or or loved one towards someone else who God uses to lead him or her in a full step of commitment to Christ. Very often that's the case. For all Christians, Jerusalem is a place where we must be aware at all times of the potential to share a a few seeds of, of the grace of God we know that's at work in us. It is undoubtedly where the majority of ordinary believers are most effective in evangelism. If we believe that God has created us for such a time as this, then we must trust that all our encounters may be of divine purpose. By reminding ourselves of this and by praying each day, Lord, help me do your will, we will inevitably grow more bold and more loving in our approach to those we see as being placed in our circle as part of that big picture, the big agenda in our lives. While some Ephesians evangelists might Make a lot of noise in the public arena, it is again the foot soldiers, the ordinary men and women of faith, who can make the biggest long standing impact on someone else's journey towards God. But our journey does not begin and end in Jerusalem. Jesus would have us look beyond the city. That brings us to Judea. You know, Judea was further afield for the disciples, and it's the same for us. Judea represents the evangelism of those friends and contacts we don't see so regularly, our wider family perhaps and those who you'd perhaps call acquaintances and distant colleagues rather than close friends. You know, the process, however, is the same. You know, the gospel actually is the same. (laughs) We're not going to use a different gospel message. We'll just package it differently, have maybe a different vehicle. You know, wherever there's conversation, there's an opportunity. For example, you know, how was your weekend? Great, thanks. We went to the cinema on Saturday night. Then on Sunday, we went to church as usual. You know, that kind of dialogue is always very useful. Never be afraid to sandwich something about church or something that indicates you're a Christian into your normal conversation. And then, of course, be ready to back it all up with that action, the actions. You know, it might be that the person you're talking to completely ignores the fact that you just mentions you're a churchgoer and you should always give them the space and choice to do that. On the other hand, since this is no longer the Sunday morning pursuit of, of most people, you'll probably find it gets a reaction that you know, can kick off a further conversation. Who knows? If Jerusalem and Judea posed a challenge to the first disciples, they would feel especially in need of the power of the Holy Spirit when Jesus mentioned Samaria. I can just imagine a few hard gulps as they swallowed this piece of the command. Samaria, where the Samaritans lived, represented the enemies of the Jews. You know, what does that mean for us? Well <laughs> well, you know, the mind boggles. I suggest this means Jesus asked us to evangelize amongst people we might find it very difficult to like and get along with, and people that find it very difficult to like and get along with us. You know, people who might not care too much for us at all. You know, this might be very tough. But again, where there's a relationship, even poor relationship, there's communication. And where there's communication, there's a possibility for the gospel. Jesus told us, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you, in Luke chapter 6. You know, John's epistle should also provoke our heart as well, in 1 John chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command whoever loves God must also love his brother. Indeed, really challenging, but the more we love God, the easier it will become to love people, whoever they are. And we cannot love other people without caring for them. Perhaps in some cases, a prerequisite for our love will be the needs for forgiveness. Jesus was very clear on this matter in his parable of the unmerciful servants, recorded in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. You know, here, A servant pleads for mercy at the feet of his master over a huge debt he can't pay. Taking pity on him, the master cancels the debt, letting him go free. But no sooner has this happened than the servant, we're told, goes to a fellow servant who owes him a relatively smaller debt. Despite this man's pleas, the first servant is unforgiving and has him thrown into prison. The master, of course, hears about this wicked act and confronts the servant. You know, we read, You wicked servants," he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had the same mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Well, isn't it true how easy we for, you know, forget as well? You know, we get a forgiving heart when we have a forgiving heart. The crux of the gospel message is forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins, my sins. And the direct consequence of God forgiving me is that I'm compelled to forgive others. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, forgive as the Lord forgave you. True forgiveness in human terms is extremely hard. It's really tough. And in some cases, it can be impossible. Yet the forgiveness of God, by its very nature, makes all things possible. For some people, it will be the experience of your genuine forgiveness that speaks louder than any other words as to the truth of the grace of Christ abounding in your life. Perhaps then Samaria has the most powerful potential for evangelistic efforts and for the power of the gospel to be doubly revealed by our witness of forgiving as we forgive. You know, Samaria might present a challenge to the early disciples and to us today, but once again, we can only look at Jesus as our example. People whom many others would have labelled difficult or undesirable surrounded him day by day, yet he was labelled a friend of sinners, wasn't he? One of the many so intriguing things about Jesus and the Bible is that he was comfortable with sinners and they were comfortable with him too. So please keep in mind here that he didn't just spend his time having a social chit chat with some people like this. He also taught them about the kingdom of God. He confronted them. The danger with our family, friends, colleagues, neighbours and acquaintances and so on, yes, even our enemies, is that sometimes we're so keen on maintaining the relationships that we completely ignore the evangelism. You know, there's no relationship on earth that takes priority over our loyalty to Jesus Christ. And we've got to remember his example above all others. Jesus lovingly pointed out to Nicodemus, an older man with considerable prestige and knowledge of the scriptures, that he was ignorant of heavenly things. We read that in John chapter 3. Jesus also lovingly told a Samaritan woman that she could never worship God without facing up to her moral sin in John chapter 4. So what does this tell us? I believe it shows us that the relationships that Christ formed, close and distant, led directly to confrontation and sometimes rejection. This is a potential consequence for us as well, I'm afraid, as we've already looked at this, we know there are spiritual powers and principalities at work, fiercely at work, trying to take us down. So when we're looking at matters of the soul, we're very much in a war zone here. It really is a war. Rejection and even persecution shouldn't exactly surprise us then, should it? But but what is the Lord's example? What is it? Jesus looked at him and loved him. We're told of our Saviour in his encounter with the rich, young man who couldn't handle his message in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. And what greater love in the face of rejection was ahead. Jesus praying, Father, forgive them, while the crowd hurled abuse as he died on the cross. You know, our message will be rejected. Of course it will be, sadly to say, friends. And sometimes that will mean personal rejection too. But please take heart and persevere. For whilst we sometimes walk on stony, rocky grounds, we're also surrounded by rich, fertile soil that is ready and waiting for the seeds of the gospel to be sown. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria are areas that require serious personal investment. Just as Moses found himself wandering the desert with his people, so too we might have to prepare ourselves to persevere long and hard in the hope and expectation that our witness will lead our friends, loved ones and acquaintances to the promise of God. Our desert quest must continue, and so let's pack our bags with a new set of skills and step out into this new territory. We
0: hope you enjoyed the message. Please subscribe and leave a rating. And-